celebrity Let your weary mind be free And someone kind of famous who you can't see It's time for sleeping with celebrity Hello sleepyheads and welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. On this audio program, we invite our guests to step out of the limelight and into the nightlight. On this program, for one bedtime at least, I don't want them to bring their A game, but rather their Z game. It's a podcast where you can sleep, you can simply relax, you can take a break from stress and intensity. Just ahead, we'll be sleeping with Guy Branham. He's going to talk with me about the Holy Roman Empire. But before that, I invite you to settle in and get comfortable while I tell you about another show on the Maximum Fun Network. Maximum Film is the long-running Max Fun movie review show with hosts comedian Ify Nwadwe, a.k.a. the buff black nerd, film critic Alonzo Duralde, a.k.a. the Christmas Zaddy, and producer-slash-film festival programmer Drea Clark, a.k.a. the Queen of the Midwest. The show seeks to highlight marginalized voices while also giving a diverse perspective on mainstream movies. It is a movie review show that isn't just a bunch of straight white dudes. The show reviews a new film each week while also discussing the latest issues in the film industry. While the conversations go deep, the show is also hilarious, raunchy, and infectiously silly. That's Maximum Film, here on Maximum Fun, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our guest. Guy Branham is an author, comedy writer, actor, and the former gay ambassador to a show on Tech TV slash G4. It was there he got his first IMDb credit as a writer, and has since gone on to write for The Chelsea Handler Show, Billy on the Street, The Other Two, and really too many to name. He also made my favorite observation ever about springtime in Minnesota, that it consists of five non-consecutive days in May. Guy created and starred in talk show The Game Show, and has appeared as an actor on the big screen. A true renaissance man, as you're about to find out. Guy Branham, welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. Good to be here, John. I like to start these conversations off with a question or two about sleep. Do you recall the best night of sleep you've ever had? You know, John, I don't know that I can recall the best night of sleep that I've ever had, but... um... Yesterday, I did go in for a colonoscopy, uh, and I was put completely under. And I have to say, that was very satisfying. And uh, the night of sleep I got last night, with uh, a little bit of the drug still holding on, was very sound. 
dreams during this sleep or too deep for dreams? Uh, I enjoyed some dreams. Um, I did contact the infinite just a little. Okay. Do you always sleep in the same position? I sleep in an ever-shifting set of positions. I generally start out in one of two places and then explore the space around me over the course of the night. What are the two places? Left shoulder or right shoulder. I see. All right. And what is it that drew your interest in particular to the Holy Roman Empire? Well, the Holy Roman Empire was an enigma that I could never quite put my finger on. And I think that's the charm that leads so many to fall in love with its complexities. It is an entity that doesn't make sense. And through its evolution over the course of a millennium, um, can never truly be explained or understood. Hmm. When we talk about the Holy Roman Empire and we talk about the Roman Empire, are those different things? Yes, it's very confusing to many people. The Roman Empire, of course, was a political entity centered on Rome on the Italian peninsula between roughly 400 BC and roughly 300 AD. Um, The Holy Roman Empire took its name as an homage to the original Roman Empire. After Charlemagne in the 9th century um, united much of Western Europe, he ended up going down to Rome, to the Pope, to receive his crown from the Pope. And in that, trying to receive um, some legacy from the the Roman emperors. The term Holy Roman Empire evolved over time. It wasn't until hundreds of years later that this person purporting to be the King of Rome uh, referred to himself as Holy Roman Emperor. And still later it evolved into the Holy Roman Empire of the Germans. But the Holy Roman Empire we are referring to is a political entity between roughly um, France and Poland, Denmark, and the middle of Italy um, that existed between roughly 800 and 1806. While its beginning is uncertain, its end date is definitive. Oh, why is the end date definitive? (laughs) It was Napoleon's work, of course. After the Napoleonic Wars, this very old, very creaky institution sort of no longer had a place in Europe. And um, the emperors of uh, Austria-Hungary, who had held the title of Holy Roman Emperor for hundreds of years by that point in time, simply considered it you know, more reasonable for them to have uh, an empire that existed as opposed to one empire that existed and one empire that was um, a legal and political fiction of great honor. So who do we need to know about the Holy Roman Empire? Who are the characters, the people, possibly the emperors or, or other people thereabouts, who have stood out for you as being the leading characters in this drama? There are major characters who come up. Uh, Charlemagne, of course, the the first and biggest, though one could say the Holy Roman Empire didn't really exist during his life. It was simply Charlemagne's empire. Charlemagne divided his empire between three sons. One son received Eastern Francia, which ended up becoming the forerunner of modern France. 
One son really received Western Francia, which became the Holy Roman Empire, and uh, one son, Lothair, received the territories in between, which weren't really a country because most of the, essentially the Alps ran directly through them. So it was ungovernable, unreasonable, and it quickly fell apart. A couple of generations later, the descendants of the son who received Eastern Francia ran out. And at that point in time, by succession law, the Eastern Francia should have gone to the kings of France. Instead, the dukes of the major stem duchies of the territory, there were eight major duchies, decided that they would elect one of their own to be emperor, creating the tradition that the most powerful magnates of the territory would decide who the emperor was. Around 300 years later, in the 13th century, by papal bull, it became established that those seven electors were the Archbishop of Mainz, the Archbishop of Trier, the Archbishop of Cologne, the Duke of Saxony, the Margrave of Brandenburg, and the Count Palatine of the Rhine, and the King of Bohemia, who was not part of the empire, but was its most significant Eastern neighbor. So, you know, the electors, we could say, are significant characters. But I think one of the magnificent complexities of the Holy Roman Empire is the diversity of the players involved. This was a, over time, a complex agglomeration of over 300 sovereign states, some of them kingdoms like Bohemia, dukedoms like Saxony, margraviates like Brandenburg, but also archbishops, abbeys could be given by the emperor imperial immediacy. That is, a simple abbey with 11 nuns could have the status of a full state. Their abbess would be a princess. Cities would be given the distinction of free cities by the emperor. Hamburg, Lübeck, Regensburg, I believe, would have a status where they governed themselves and no one else. There would be even free people, Freiherrs, who were given imperial immediacy only over their person. They ruled over no territory. They themselves could answer to no one but the emperor. What's imperial immediacy? Imperial immediacy is essentially the right of sovereignty. The way that the state of California has the power to define all laws for this space, except for those that are subject to federal supremacy. Similarly, each of these territories or persons were sovereign. They minted their own money. They had their own stamps. They had their own laws. Also, many of these territories were non-contiguous. In the German territories, it was normal for, instead of primogeniture, the British tradition of the oldest son inheriting all land, lands would be divided between male heirs, which frequently broke up territories. And then when lands were extinguished, portions of those territories would return to uh, superior lines, thus creating extremely complex maps where, you know, a simple walk of three or four miles could take you through four different sovereign territories with different laws and and different obligations. Can you tell us which territories would be similar to particular states of the modern United States 
which are analogous to which? Like, is Bohemia the Florida man of the Holy Roman Empire? Bohemia, in its way, becomes the California of the Holy Roman Empire. That tracks. It existed outside of the Holy Roman Empire to the east instead of to the west, as is the case for California. But over time, its empire grew. In the 14th or 15th century, the line of the kings of Bohemia ran out. There was, of course, a great deal of concern throughout Europe at this time about the invasion of the Turks, and Bohemia was concerned about their sovereignty. So they turned to the most powerful regional magnate, the Archduke of Austria, and asked for the Archduke of Austria to take, uh, who was married to the daughter of the former king of Bohemia, to take up the mantle as king of Bohemia, becoming himself an elector. This was the origin of the great house of Habsburg. So the Habsburgs over time managed to extend their territory out, outside of the Holy Roman Empire to include Hungary and Croatia. But at the same time, they took up the mantle of emperor and served as emperor for an unbroken line of hundreds of years, with the single exception being the one time that the title Archduke of Austria was inherited by a woman, Maria Theresa, when a substitute had to be found, her husband and then her son, to serve as emperor. Well, by the time her son served, she was gone. But Bohemia through Austria became the outsized entity that was pulling too much weight in the empire, whose focus and interests were external while at the same time underserving the limited obligations that they had as emperor to the the rest of these territories. Another of the great figures that we need to look to to try to understand this strange place is Catherine the Great, who was, of course, not uh, a great figure of the Holy Roman Empire, but was only made possible through the Holy Roman Empire. Catherine the Great's father was the Prince of Anhalt-Zerbst, a tiny territory with an army of fewer than a hundred soldiers. But because she was the daughter of a sovereign prince of the Holy Roman Empire, she was of a station where she could marry the son of the Tsar and eventually become Empress herself and then eventually take over from her husband and wield the power of a despot. Another of the states we really must think of is the Margraviate of Brandenburg. They also, electors inherited by the House of Hohenzollern in the 14th or 15th century. But they, like the the Austrians, existed on the very edge of the Holy Roman Empire and through wars of conquest into territories that weren't part of the empire, managed to increase their power so much that they were given the title king in Prussia, named for the territories in Poland that they had conquered. Eventually, their increasing power and the increasing power inside and outside of the empire of the Habsburgs would put them on a a course that would lead only to war and the division and destruction of the empire. Catherine the Great, who you mentioned, was played by Elle Fanning on the Hulu show, The Great. Do you agree with that casting? To my mind, capturing the complexity of a historical genius is always a a difficult game. To my mind, the collage of 
Elle Fanning and Catherine the Great and Helen Mirren in HBO's The Great and all of the other different representations we have had of Catherine the Great allow us to get some taste of who this figure was. I personally had trouble with the Hulu series The Great. Its refusal to adhere to basic facts, basic structures from history, I thought decontextualized this character and didn't allow us to see her through her actual genius. Mm. You know, who was this this complex character who simultaneously built an empire and regularly had sex with her horse? Mm. Is that a true thing or an apocryphal thing? The horse. John, history is shrouded. Mm. We are given texts, but what are those texts other than subjective interpretation? To my mind, we must treat all things that have come down to us as a kind of truth. Certainly, one may say that uh, things are rumors, things are speculation, but is that any less true than the official truth that was given permission by the established structures of the time surrounding them? I mean, Herodotus is the father of history, but is he not also the father of lies? Hmm. I can't answer that question, but I think it was rhetorical. When we talk about some of these influential figures in the history of the Holy Roman Empire, when you think of the Habsburgs, when you think of Catherine the Great, when you think of some of these people, who would TMZ be most interested in covering? You know, I think this really gets to the period of time when the Habsburg power base begins spilling out so much that it encompasses the world. An heir to the House of Habsburg, Maximilian, was married to the heir to the newly formed Spanish Empire, Juana la Loca, Joanna the Crazy, as she is commonly known. Juana was herself, after the death of her brother and her sister, she, she became the heir to her parents, Ferdinand and Isabella. And, you know, the new astoundingly rich empire of Spain, which now reached out over the Atlantic Ocean to embrace so much of the Americas, based on the presumption, again, this question of what is truth, what is rumor, what is the official truth that was more expedient, Juana was placed in a room for decades and not allowed to rule. Control of her lands and her empire went to her Habsburg husband, who I think was Maximilian, but may actually have been Charles V. I get this confused. But to me, really, that period of time and the, of course, Habsburg tradition of marrying their nieces, mm. which became so powerful for consolidating land and consolidating power, but also led to recessive genes being so reinforced that Habsburg chins grew to the point that speech was no longer possible and the traditional lisp of Castilian Spanish came into fashion. But I, I really think that TMZ would have been fascinated, preoccupied by the, dare we say it, Kardashian-like charm of the Habsburgs as they united with the throne of Spain. Mm. Was the lisp because of the big chins? Yes. 
their jaws became prohibitively large to the point. And it's, you know, well documented in art that, you know, the, the final Habsburg king of Spain was so severely inbred that he could barely speak or feed himself. But it, it was the price that the Habsburgs paid for securing and solidifying power. Was it considered, and again, I'm thinking about the gossip elements of this, was it considered scandalous at the time to do all this niece marrying and jaw growing? The royal houses of Europe, from the point in time that international travel by sea became practical, essentially became one united family. There have always been a a number of great monarchs whose profound fecundity led to uh, their becoming an ancestor of a great number of royal houses. Today, of course, we know so many royal houses descended from Queen Victoria or Christian IX of Denmark. And uh, of course, the uh, hereditary uh, hemophilia that came along with descent uh, from Queen Victoria. John, what you have to understand is at the same time that the House of Habsburg is controlling half of Eastern Europe, all of the Iberian Peninsula, and is making claims to huge portions of North and South America and Africa and Asia. There is a a simultaneous decline in power amongst the, the tiny princes of all of these other 300 territories within the Holy Roman Empire. And I think the Habsburgs their their detractors and their greatest fans would agree that the niece marriage was a price that was paid for securing diplomatic ties and securing a base of of power and authority to make it all possible. Do the Habsburgs exist in some form today? Sleepyheads, it is time once again for me to tell you about another program on the Maximum Fun Network. Dead Pilots Society brings you comedy pilots that networks bought but never made. Shows that you can't see or hear anywhere else because they were too good for TV. The pilots come from the top writers in television, writers like Adam McKay, Genji Cohen, and John Hodgman. They feature actors and comedians you love, like Patton Oswalt, Maria Bamford, Tony Hale, Tiffany Haddish, Molly Shannon, Will Forte, Rain Wilson, Carrie Mulligan, and hundreds more. Dead Pilot Society also brings you in-depth conversations between Andrew Reich, Emmy-winning showrunner of Friends, and the creators of the pilots, giving you insider insight into the creation, selling, and development of television comedies. The program is Dead Pilots Society, available on Maximum Fun and wherever you get your podcasts. Do the Habsburgs exist in some form today? The current pretender to the throne of Austria is, I believe, the grandson or the great-grandson 
of the last emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the last emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was himself the grandson of the final Holy Roman Emperor. The current pretender is a politician in Austria. The, the family was exiled from Austria for a period of time, but I believe they returned to reclaim some of their holdings, some of their castles, and he has run for office and uh, under some banner of pan-Europeanism. So, you know, so many of the deposed royal families of Europe in the wake of the fall of the Iron Curtain have attempted to find a place for themselves in the elected politics of their native countries or their ancestral countries. When you use the term pretender, you don't mean that he's just only pretending to be related to these people. No, the term pretender is used for the chief claimant to the throne of a country that no longer has a royal family. Currently, Italy, Hungary, Greece, all of these countries have people who would be their king. France, of course, has three separate people who would be the king of France based on different lines of descent and and depositions of, of monarchs. And these people so frequently take uh, the honor and rank in European society without holding any of the official position or power. I mean, they, they are, if nothing else, let us return our minds to Catherine the Great. These people are, if nothing else, considered appropriate spouses for members of other royal families. If you were to go back in time to the Holy Roman Empire, where would you select to live and what year would you select to live in? What a fabulous question. You know, the Holy Roman Empire gives us a a vast geographical swath, everywhere from the swamps of the Netherlands up the Rhine all the way to the cantons of Switzerland down into the city-states of northern Italy. Oh, one of the, the many little gifts given to us by the Holy Roman Empire, we must remember, are the, the tiniest states of Europe, Monaco, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, places that would only exist now because they were once constituents of the Holy Roman Empire. They were part of the over 300 sovereign states. They were part of the over 300 sovereign states. One of the most charming stories is the, the origin of Liechtenstein. The, the family of Liechtenstein were high-ranking advisors to the Habsburg emperors, but they did not hold any territory that was in imperial immediacy to the emperor. They did not hold anything that would give them the rank of a prince. So when two territories with imperial immediacy between Austria and Switzerland became available, the emperor arranged for the Liechtensteins to purchase them, allowing them to take the title of prince. That said, no member of the family ever visited the principality until after the fall of the Holy Roman Empire. But because of its unique location between Austria and Switzerland, when the at the end of the Holy Roman Empire, when these tiny territories were mediatized, Liechtenstein remained. But to answer your question, I would probably have to go to the uh, the Abbey of, of Bengt, I think. I mean, it's it's a little ridiculous. It was, of course, 
a convent for, for women. It was a, a small number of aristocratic nuns who lived there, elected their own leader, their princess, and, you know, had large swaths of territory that they, not, not particularly large, that they let out to, to tenant farmers. But I think living in a polity that was ruled by some degree of consensus of religiously minded women at that point in time, let's say 1350, just to move us solidly before questions of Protestantism and Catholicism really changed the dynamics of the Holy Roman Empire and, and created a period of, of war and, and uncertainty that would roil until Napoleon reared his head. And at that place in the world and at that time in history, what language would you be speaking? What a great question, John. We need to remember that the languages we have now are a result of the nationalism and the nation-state building of the 19th century. That before that point in time, languages varied. There was not a distinct idea of a national language. There was complexity. Within France, we still understand that there are Provençal dialects, that the Languedoc exists because, in, in contrast to the Languedoc of the, the northern portions, but the simple answer to your question is some version of German. The Holy Roman Empire was largely a Germanophone entity, though what those Germans were evolved and changed as one moved just a couple of miles down the Rhine. Like what I refer to now as German evolved into such languages as the Dutch and Flemish of the Low Countries, or Bavarian dialects, and, and also it was never exclusive. This political entity was never intended to be a space of cultural uniformity. In many Italian dialects flourished throughout the, the portions south south of the Alps. The Swiss German of, of today was a, a you know another flavor of the German that was spoken. But presumably these would be people who were speaking German for their everyday needs and for politics or any sort of academic work would still be working in Latin. Hmm. You mentioned Flemish. What is Flemish? And was there a country called Flem at some point? <laughs> what a charming question, John. We've never had a country of Flem. But we have had half of a country of Flem. We have many times referenced the coming of Napoleon, his conquest of so much of the Holy Roman Empire, and his restructuring of the empire. After his fall, the, the restructuring that he had done, merging these tiny territories into larger territories, there was, there was a lot of restructuring of the map to try to create a more reasonable and practical relationship of, of powers between countries. In doing so, the former rogue nation of the Netherlands, seven little provinces that threw off the yoke of the Habsburgs and with them the Holy Roman Empire, were given the lands that we now know as the Netherlands. But they were also given the Dutch territories to their south, all the way down to Luxembourg, which was held by the House of Orange, the, the ruling house to this day, of the Netherlands. But fewer than 20 years later, the Catholic majority in the southern part of that country rose up in rebellion 
and threw off their king and founded the little country of the Netherlands. The Netherlands, of course, is divided between Dutch speakers in the north, their version of Dutch being known as Flemish, and French speakers in the south, known as Walloons. So, while we have never had a nation of Flem, we can hope that Belgium stays together. But if it is ever riven by its linguistic distinctions, perhaps there is a future for the nation of Flem. Why do they call it Flemish if if it doesn't have a root in any particular country that shares that name? You know, I'm not entirely certain about that. I think that Flemish has traditionally been a reference to the Low Countries version of German. So we 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 use the word we use the word Dutch to refer to the Netherlands, but in doing so, we are just using a bastardized version of the German word for German. I believe Deutsch. it is possible that the Dutch people themselves refer to their language internally as Netherlandish that is the language of the low countries but i think it is an internal term within the dutch language for the dutch language let's say i want to learn as much as i can about the holy roman empire but i don't want to you know open a book can you recommend visual media titles television film that i can do a lot of learning with without having to deal with books it's so difficult john because this country mm, No, I shouldn't call it a country. This entity, this set of institutions is so hard to wrap our heads around that when it comes up in historical media, its its nature is elided. I would point you to the many filmic and television representations of the life of Elizabeth I. So frequently, a man by the name of Chapuis is represented as the ambassador of Spain with a Spanish accent, or in in some other way, a creature of Spain, when in actuality, he was a noble from Savoy who worked in service of the Habsburgs, who at that point in time were ruling over Spain. It's so much easier for us to say Germany and behave as though Germany existed before 1870 than to, to really give any space or understanding for this world. I would I would say if you really wanted to look anywhere, it would be the fairy tales or marching of the Brothers Grimm. Will it provide you with a political understanding of the world? No. Will it provide you with an understanding of the constituents of the woods, of the wolves, of the stepmothers that made this strange little world, strange enormous world, run? Yes. This is somewhat off topic, but what are your thoughts on the song Because of You by Gustav? And what is that? Because my producer is making me ask it, and I don't know what she's talking about. I'm not familiar with Gustav. I do know a song called Because of You. I enjoy it greatly. It is filled with great spirits. Is it the Belgian entry in the Eurovision Song Contest? Oh, okay. Yes, I, I wasn't familiar, but yes, because of you is the Belgian entry in the Eurovision Song Contest. One of the sort of 
successors to the Holy Roman Empire we have now, a possibility for expression of national identity that does not rest on military strength, that does not rest on geographic size. The Holy Roman Empire and Eurovision are, are both places where little San Marino can stand face to face with Germany or Great Britain and, and see itself victorious, or at least respected. I would like it if there were the 300 sovereign states represented in the Eurovision contest, and especially if some of those like single guys and abbeys full of nuns were represented. You know, that was the beauty of the Holy Roman Empire, that in front of the, the Supreme Court of the Holy Roman Empire, you know, a group of peasants could stand up against the entire principality of Württemberg and declare their rights and, and possibly have them seen through. It would be so beautiful to, to have little scraps of that world on our own, but it's important to remember that we do. Little Monaco wouldn't exist if it hadn't been one of the princes of the Holy Roman Empire, if it didn't exist at uh, the frontier between the, the forming French and Italian states, left as a, a tiny little buffer to remind us of, of times that once were. Perhaps this is a, a final question for you, but where did you learn all this stuff? Thirteen years ago, I was on a trip to go perform stand-up comedy at various colleges, and I downloaded a couple of university courses and listened to them. And as I was listening to one of the lectures, it was from a professor at my own alma mater, UC Berkeley. It was on the Second Reich, which is, you know, after the end of the Holy Roman Empire in 1806, there were basically 64 years of renegotiation of what the German lands would be and how they would relate to each other that ended in the Franco-Prussian War and the formation of the German Empire, the Second Reich. And the first lecture in the course about the Second Reich was about you know, this this forerunner, this strange creature, the Holy Roman Empire. And I, I said to myself, this professor is so captivating. Why didn't I ever take one of her courses? And then I did some quick Googling and determined that she had taught my European history survey class my sophomore year, but I didn't like her because her bob always popped forward when she was making a point. So I found her uh, detestable in the class, but then some 15, 20 years later, had fallen in love with her words and her work. She really sent me off on a, a journey of discovery with the Holy Roman Empire. Let's do a rapid fire round and give sure. us your, your first thoughts on some important historical figures. Sure. Charles V. I mean, he ruled half of the world. You know, has there ever been anyone more at, at, at the top of his game. Did he hold it together? Kind of. Frederick III. Oh, I mean, the entire House of Hohenzollern were um, amazing creatures, but super game may not have had his testicles. His father may have had his testicles removed. Hmm. Maximilian II? Oh, I mean, again, he's the one, I believe, who he either is the one who stole Spain from his wife or who was Juana La Loca's son who ended up pulling, you know, sort of really cracking down on the Low Countries. You know, all of those Habsburgs were doing the best that they could with diminishing intellectual 
resources. Families are complicated sometimes. Yeah. How about Constantine? Are, are we referring to, to Constantine the Great of the original Roman Empire? I mean, we really can't have this conversation without discussing him. You know, what what is the Holy Roman Empire but the union of a pan-European ideal with a Christianity? And, you know, from the, from the moment that Constantine saw that cross in front of the sun on the battlefield and converted... He really was drawing in a, a new tradition to Europe, a set of ideas that would be in conflict with the power games of feudalism, but would, would have to work with them. I mean, can one say that the socialism, the idealism taught by Jesus and his apostles were enacted by the medieval or Renaissance church? No. But was it vital to have those ideals present? Certainly. Hmm. Finally, who is your choice of Ottos? Otto the first, Otto the second, or Otto the third? To my mind, Otto the second is 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 the key. Like it really is the the point in time, the ninth century, tenth century, where the power that will be held by the institutions of the Holy Roman Empire are uncertain where the, the power that will be, you know, exerted by the Pope versus the Emperor are in play. And I think that Otto II really set us up for that I, I, iconic head-to-head battle between Pope Gregory VII and Henry IV, where Henry IV tried to assert the power of the empire to appoint its own clerics. And Gregory VII held out so long and so hard so turned public opinion against him that the Holy Roman Empire was required to walk on his bare feet across his own empire to the castle at Canossa, kneel down for three days in a blizzard, and wait for the Pope to open the gates so that he could come in and make penance. Well, I'm glad that we don't have to do that. Guy Branham, thank you so much for sleeping with us. I very much enjoyed hearing about the Holy Roman Empire, and good night. Good night. Well, sleepyheads, I hope you enjoyed learning about the Holy Roman Empire as much as I did. You know, something I like to do at the end of my day is make a mental catalog of things that I experienced and or learned. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to put together a list of takeaways from my conversation with Guy Branham right now while it's fresh in my mind. One, it's Napoleon's fault that the Holy Roman Empire ended in 1806. Two, Castilian Spanish features a lisp because their rulers had exceptionally large chins on account of inbreeding. Three, Hemophilia was passed along by Queen Victoria. 4. The Holy Roman Empire and the Eurovision Song Contest have more in common than I or you ever realized. And 5. There is no country of phlegm. (sighs) Okay, I'm going to turn in myself. Thank you for sleeping with me and my guest, Guy Branham. You can follow Sleeping With Celebrities on Twitter and TikTok with the handle 
at sleepwithcelebs. On Instagram, the handle is at sleepwcelebs. Our email is sleepwithcelebs at maximumfun.org. Music is provided by the Winterbowers. The show was senior produced and edited by Laura Swisher. Swish. This is a production of Maximum Fun and Papuchik. I'm John Moe. Night night. Maximum Fun. A worker owned network of artist owned shows. Supported directly by you.